So last week, Joseph marries Mary, and John is born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. John is the prophesied Elijah, who's to prepare the people for the Messiah. Now, don't confuse him with John, the disciple, who wrote the Gospel of John. This baby will be called John the Baptist and is related to Jesus on his mother's side. People usually call them cousins, and we will too, although we don't actually know their exact relationship. So Jesus and John the Baptist are cousins, more or less. Luke is the only gospel writer who tells us the story of Jesus' birth. Luke is also the only one who takes care to tell the story from the viewpoint of the women involved, Elizabeth and Mary. Matthew only tells Joseph's side of the story and the story of the Magi. I keep it straight in my head by remembering L for Luke's ladies and M for Matthew's men. That way it's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that way it's easy for me to find the stories in the Bible. Luke tells us that this all happens when Caesar Augustus issues a decree that a census be taken of the entire Roman Empire. Well, that timeline works. You can see the dates of Caesar's reign span spanning from 27 BCE to 14 CE. Now, these dates equate to BC and AD, but BCE and CE are the terms used by most scholars, so that's what we'll use too. But then Luke says this is the first census while Quirinius is governing Syria. Okay, so we've got Caesar Augustus in Rome, Quirinius in Syria. So historically, we know Quirinius was governor um, of Syria from 6 to 9 CE. And we know he conducted a census in 6 CE. If Jesus is born in 6 Common Era, and as we find out later, crucified around 30 Common Era, he would have been only about 21 years old when he began his ministry, not in his 30s, as Luke states in the very next chapter. Plus, Matthew's story about the wise men happens while Herod is still alive, and Herod died in 4 BCE. So either Luke contradicts himself here, or Quirinius, perhaps some scholars think Quirinius may have served in some official capacity in Syria 10 years before he actually became governor and did a census then, or Luke is simply using a little poetic license here. The main point is that everyone has to go back to their ancestral home to register for the census. Joseph is a descendant of King David, and David's hometown was Bethlehem. So Joseph and Mary travel from the Galilee area. Their home is in Nazareth. Um, it's up on a mountain just, just north of the Jezreel Valley. So they travel down the mountain through Samaria and down to Bethlehem in the southern region called Judea. Bethlehem is just a few miles south of Jerusalem. It's a tiny little place, and there are lots of folks there. And it makes sense that they would stay with relatives, but we don't know for sure that they have relatives still living in Bethlehem. I tend to assume they do. Luke says there's no place for them in the guest room, which could either be in their relative's home or an inn. 
So they end up staying in the stable with the animals. Well, that, that stable could have been a lower level of the home, sort of what we think of as garage space, or it could have been a separate area. Doesn't really matter. Don't get all hung up in that part. It was smelly, but at least it was private and relatively warm. I also cannot imagine that Joseph was left to deliver this baby all alone. Even nowadays, there is a strong pull within women to assist other women in childbirth, especially if they're having to give birth away from home after a long trip, and it's the young mother's first birth. I don't see any possible way that the women, even if they were strangers, would have left Mary to face this alone. I think it's far more likely that the women attending the birth have been erased from the story. Mary wraps Jesus in swaddling cloths and lays him in a manger, which is a low stone rectangular box. Here's a picture I took of one in Israel. To give you kind of an idea of the scale, you can see people's feet and legs in the picture. It would have been sitting on the ground just like this with a bed of hay or grain in it. Right about that same time, there were shepherds out in a nearby field, keeping watch over their flocks. I've seen lots of articles and heard sermons claiming that shepherds were outcasts and considered unclean, but I am suspicious of those claims because none of them seem to be backed up by scholarly references. In fact, the footnotes of this very verse in the New Revised Standard Version of the Jewish Annotated New Testament, specifically states, contrary to some Christian teaching, Jews of the time did not view shepherds as outcast or unclean. And that makes sense. Several really important guys in the Hebrew Bible were shepherds, like Moses and David, for starters. Prophet Amos was another one. Sure, shepherding was a humble occupation. It was often given to the youngest son to do. But in the Hebrew Bible, we see that God makes a habit of speaking to and through the humblest of people. Humility is God's preferred state of the heart. So it's no surprise that God makes his biggest announcement to the humblest of folks. So these shepherds, perhaps teenagers, are out there trying to keep each other awake while they keep an eye out for predators, when suddenly the glory of the Lord shines all around them, and an angel of the Lord appears to them and scares them half to death. I absolutely love this rendition of the angel. It is by the Edge Group and Lion Hudson Limited. This is exactly what I imagine an angel must look like based on the descriptions in the Bible. Terrifying. Angels are never described with wings, blonde hair, or as women, but are often shining and often described as warriors. They are the heavenly hosts. No wonder the first thing in the, this particular angel and most angels in general says is do not be afraid. There is no need to fear, he says. I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Now in Greek, there are a bunch of different words 
for people. Every time the New Testament says people, we need to look up which Greek word is being used. It can change the whole meaning of the verse. This particular word is laos. It means people of the same tribe or nation or language. Laos is the most common word for people in the New Testament, and that's because these writers are usually speaking to or about the Jewish nation. When Laos is used, we need to be thinking Israel or Jews. Here are other words in the New Testament that are translated as people. Aklas means a multitude, a crowd, a throng, with kind of a connotation of common people. Plethos is the root of our English word plethora. It means a multitude, a large number. Ethnos is the root for our word ethnicity. In the New Testament, ethnos is the word used to describe Gentiles, foreigners, anyone who is not a Jew. Demos is where our words like democracy come from. It means the public and is usually referring to a political assembly. Anima means specific individuals, people who can be named. And if the Greek writers want to say all of anything, people, animals, whatever, they can use the word pas or panti. Every single one of these words is translated as people in our New Testaments, but you can see how different their meanings are. So the word people in my Bible is a red flag. I always use a free tool like Bible Hub or eSword to look up the exact Greek word being used. So think about this particular verse for a second. The angel doesn't say he brings good tidings to anima, meaning particular named individuals. He doesn't say demos, meaning the public or the public assembly. He doesn't say plethos or aklas, which means crowds or multitudes. And he for sure doesn't say ethnos, which means Gentiles or non-Jews. When the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy for the whole nation, he says ponti or the whole, but he doesn't stop there. He adds laos the word used to describe the Jews as a people, as a nation. What he says is, do not fear. I bring you good news for the whole nation. And given the context and the word choice, he's talking about the Jewish nation. So you may need to take a deep breath here. It's going to be okay. Jesus is good news for us Gentiles too. We get added in, but we don't get added in until later in the story. And I want you to understand that. I want you to understand these stories the way they were understood by the people involved. It will make a big difference. The angel continues, today for you, a savior has been born in the city of David. He is Christos Kurias, which means the Lord Messiah, the anointed one. 
Now, these are all hugely significant words. The Jews have been waiting for hundreds of years for a Messiah to save them and restore them as a, a, a sovereign nation. And the word savior is a word often attached to rulers and emperors and kings during this time. It is an unmistakable word of power. It is perceived as a military rescuer, a powerful ally arriving with a massive army. To these shepherds, this is a direct announcement from God that the long-awaited king of the Jews has been born and the heavenly hosts are with him. Then the angel says the craziest thing. He says, here's how you'll know what I'm saying is true. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. I think this is pretty funny, actually. The angel is sending the shepherds on a scavenger hunt as if they weren't already thoroughly convinced of his words. And maybe without this, after it was all over, the shepherds would have talked themselves out of believing this ever happened at all. They'd have blamed it on the wine or something. Maybe the scavenger hunt is necessary to give solid physical proof to them that this whole incident really happened. And suddenly a whole heavenly army appears praising God and shouting glory to God in the highest and on earth Peace to humanity with whom he is delighted. Notice that God delights in all of us, in all of our humanity. The, this word is the word for humankind without distinction between nation or ethnicity, between good or bad. God delights in us all simply because he created us. And we cannot help but delight him with our very humanity. This isn't necessarily a statement of who Jesus is sent to. It is simply a statement of how God views humanity. Well, as soon as those angels leave, the shepherds hightail it into Bethlehem, the city of David, and start doing a stable-to-stable -stable search for a baby in a feeding trough. <laughs> and they find one. They find Mary and Joseph and the baby. Can you imagine? It is a sign that everything the angel said was true. This newborn is to be the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. Of course, the shepherds tell Joseph and Mary all about what they've seen and heard. And then they run all over town telling everybody else, and everyone is utterly amazed. But Mary really doesn't know what to think of this. She already knows this baby is the son of God and will be king, but this whole Messiah savior thing is new. Jesus' name means Yahweh is salvation, not Jesus is salvation. If you go back and look at Luke's story of the angel Gabriel's words to Mary, there was nothing in there about Jesus being the Messiah. So the message of the shepherds may have been a shock to Mary. But she doesn't have time to think it over because the shepherds come running back, I'm sure with a bunch of people in tow, to see this new baby who is the Messiah and is to be king one day, saving their nation. So Mary stores all her thoughts in her heart to ponder when she has a moment alone. 
eight days later, Jesus is circumcised. Unlike most Christian imaginings, this ritual is small and private and is not done in the temple. It's probably done in a home. And what, what is far less private happens 40 days after his birth, when Jesus is about six weeks old. Now, this is done in fulfillment of the law of Moses. The law of Moses has a whole bunch of laws addressing health issues. Any man or woman with a discharge is to be considered, quote, unclean. And that makes sense. Designating a discharge as unclean means no one can touch it. Everything the discharge touches is to be washed, and that's a good rule of thumb. If it's a normal discharge, like for sex or a period, the timeline for uncleanness is shortened pretty much just to the days of the discharge, and no ritual is required afterwards. Just wait a day, wash thoroughly, and go about your business. But if the discharge is abnormal, or if it is prolonged, such as after childbirth, the period of, quote, uncleanness continues for seven days after the discharge stops. Again, that makes sense as a health guideline. And including childbirth in this law makes it far less likely that intercourse will be demanded of the woman in those first six weeks when her body is so vulnerable and tender. This sounds like a good plan all the way around. Afterwards, a small sacrifice is to be taken to the priest. In the ancient times of Moses, it was the priest who looked at skin ailments and diseases and determined whether a person was contagious or not. So it makes perfect sense that after a prolonged discharge, the person would need to go to the priest before being allowed back into full participation in the community. The sacrifice varies depending on the situation, but in the case of childbirth, the requirement is a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or dove as a sin offering. Now, poor people who cannot afford a lamb can bring two pigeons or doves instead, one bird for each type of sacrifice. To learn more about the whole clean versus unclean thing and what these sacrifices mean, you can go back to class 19 in the series on Exodus through Deuteronomy. Burnt offerings and sin offerings are just categories of offerings, the point being they're making a sacrifice. And it's important to know here that Mary didn't do anything sinful by having a baby, and there's no need to imbue guilt here. But remember, this is a culture that believes illness is a punishment from the gods. And so even though our God, Yahweh, is not that kind of God, the people observing the Jews believe that illness is a punishment from the gods. So it's important to Yahweh that the, everyone understand that God is not punishing her. There is no sin involved. This is a visible ritual intended to reflect God's heart. So there is no mistake whatsoever. It is to demonstrate that Mary is wholly acceptable to God and she cannot be rejected from the community in any way simply because there was prolonged bleeding after childbirth. So it is a joyful day indeed when the day comes for Mary's purification sacrifices. 
And it is a doubly joyful day because it is that very same day that they must offer sacrifices of two pigeons or doves as a visible sign that they are dedicating their firstborn son, their pride and joy to God as their first fruits. We must always freely release our firstborn, our first everything to God in recognition that this first fruit, whatever it is that we cherish the most, the first sign of our success, whatever our first fruit is in our context, came to us directly from the hand of God in the first place. All good things come to us from God. I want to say a word here to those who have lost children, lost livelihoods, lost whatever is most precious to you. You have lived through loss and trauma. The rest of us may think we devote our children to God. We may think we trust God with our livelihood until we lose it. Then we discover we have to be able to touch God to get through the loss. We must feel God near. This is when it matters that God dwells with us. God comes to us in our pain. It is only when God is there that we can trust that our loved ones, our livelihood, even our own selves are safe. But that day is a long way off for Mary and Joseph. Today, they are simply a poor young couple purchasing the birds they need for the sacrifices for Mary's purification and for the presentation of the baby Jesus to Yahweh in the temple. Little do they know that there is a dying man inside the temple. His name is Simeon, and he is a righteous and devout man. Words, those are words meaning a man who is just and humble before the, before the Lord. Simeon has begged God to let him live to see the comfort and encouragement of Israel, the Messiah, Lord, the Christ. The word I've translated as comfort and encouragement here is the word parakleisin. It is the same Greek root as the paraclete, the Holy Spirit itself, that Jesus will one day leave to comfort his disciples. Both Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the comfort and encouragement of Israel. Simeon has dragged himself to the temple on this particular day at the urging of the Holy Spirit. He is watching for the Messiah because he knows his death is near. And when Simeon sees Mary and Joseph enter with the baby, he takes Jesus into his arms and praises God, saying, Now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have made ready in front of all the people. There's that red flag word again, people. And sure enough, it is the same word used by the angel before, laas, meaning Israel, the Jews. But in the grip of the Holy Spirit, Simeon says something amazing, something incredible, unheard of. He says, this salvation is a light for the people's revelation. 
But this time he uses the word ethnos, the word meaning non-Jews, the Gentiles. So what he's saying here is that the salvation has been read, made ready in front of all of Israel, but it is a light or and it is a light for the revelation of the Gentiles. And then he adds, it is also for the glory of your people, Israel. People there as La'as again, as you would expect. So here, for the very first time, we see a glimmer in the New Testament of what has been clear in the Hebrew Bible prophecies as well, that God is coming for all of us, Jew and Gentile alike. God has always intended to draw all of us into relationship with him. God has been trying since the very beginning to dwell with us. And now the time has come for that to happen in the form of Jesus. What a day. What a prophecy. Joseph and Mary are astounded. But then Simon says to Mary, this child will cause the rise and fall of many in Israel. He will be a sign, contradicted, opposed, and a sword will pass through your soul, so the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. We can tell from the Greek grammar that the soul being spoken of here is definitely Mary's. Poor Mary. This is not good news for her, and it speaks of a hard life for Jesus. She knows what it's been like for God's prophets, who are always opposed. At this very moment, while Simeon is prophesying over Jesus, a prophetess named Anna joins them. Now, Anna is a widow and is now 84 years old. She spends every waking moment in the temple, worshiping and fasting and praying. The passage mentions her as being from the tribe of Asher. Now, that's a very unusual thing to say. This is a woman. Woman, they don't, People don't say who women are very often. This woman is named and her tribe is given. We don't hear too much about the tribes of women. And Asher, in particular, is a tribe we hardly ever hear about. So I went to our backpack tools. In the study guide is a link to reference materials. And one of the reference materials we have is a chart of the blessings of the 12 sons of Israel, as Israel, the man who was also named Jacob, lay on his deathbed. The name Asher means or sounds like happy in Hebrew, meaning how happy I am. And the blessing Jacob gave to his son Asher was, Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. And I think that is such rich imagery here. Think of this with respect to Jesus, the one who is the bread of life, the one whom if we drink from him, we will never thirst again. I don't think the tribe of Asher is called out here by accident. Anna speaks to everyone who is waiting expectantly for the deliverance of Jerusalem. Jesus is most definitely seen as the Messiah who will save Jerusalem and restore the sovereign nation of Israel. And after all this drama, Mary and Joseph return to Nazareth with their baby. Their little son grows and becomes strong, 
filled with the wisdom and grace of God. So that is an amazing story full of joy and hope. And in our breakout groups, we'll go back and think about what expectations the Jews might have had for the Messiah and what expectations we have had as Gentiles. I want you to um, know that the the you don't have to read all the stuff at the beginning of the study guide. That's I put all that in there for the people who like to study in advance um, so they would have context for the questions. You all can drop straight to the bottom of the study guide and uh, start discussing the three questions at the bottom and just use that top part as reference if you need to. Woohoo! Merry Christmas! <laughs> oh, we weren't talking Christmas. <laughs> what are you all talking about? No condemnation. No. <laughs> oh, whatever. <laughs> we were talking about how if you compare it to what we were taught growing up, it ain't even close. Exactly. <laughs> Tell me more about that. Well, <laughs> oh, goodness, we were talking about skipping to question three, how Christians thought about the purpose of the Messiah. And then the rest of the question we kind of ignored because we got <laughs> going on another thing. <laughs> but we were talking about, let me see if I can summarize this, um, how Jesus death on the cross is not necessarily the only way to reconcile with God. Even though we've got John 3.16, it's, oh, I don't have the eloquent words. But if, like I have Islamic friends and Jewish friends, and they believe in God. And that's the same God Almighty, the one God that I believe in. It's just a different faith base and teaching. And they're not going to be left out that I believe. Well, it doesn't that, seem to based on, you know, all the places in the Bible, right? I right. mean, a Gentile, a Gentile is a Gentile. <laughs> yeah. Well, we talked also about how, um, you know, there are people who've never heard of Jesus. Yeah. And does that mean that they're excluded? Well, no, because God is not willing that any should perish. And, um, you know, that we've been taught our entire lives, those of us who grew up in Christian churches, we've been taught pretty much our entire lives that it was our responsibility to go tell everybody the good news, which according to the Christian churches is the fact that Jesus was born, died on the cross, lived lived a sinless life, died on the cross, was buried, rose again, and is coming back. And that was, quote, the gospel in a nutshell. And that if you believe that, then you were going to heaven. But then I have always questioned, wait, if salvation is not of works, it's not of anything I do, then how can it depend on what I do? And so I've always had that question, but, you know, growing up in a Christian church, we're not allowed to ask those questions. So let me get so, back to one of the thing, one of the things you said, the, what the phrase that you mentioned, 
that it is our responsibility as Christians to tell the good news to the world. What have we seen so far is the good news. That God loves us. That God loves us. Was there. That God we didn't talk about it because Jesus died for our sins. <laughs> yeah, that's but we haven't even got to that yet. I want to stay true. No, I know. I'm just saying that's the, what the automatic thing that pops. That it's kind of that word association when you say yes, that. Yes, exactly. That's what we've been programmed, whatever you want to call it. That's the automatic reflex. That's right, and and we're going to get to a whole lot of that stuff later, but just confining ourselves to the bible up to this point to the to what to whatever the people writing these gospels had which would have been all of the hebrew bible and prophets plus what they are seeing with their own eyes right now at christmas the very first christmas the good news is is what that that god loves us what else that he makes a way for us he makes a way for us. There's something in there about wanting to dwell with us, right? Wanting he delights to, in us. Wanting to share life with us, right? Delights in us. That was in today's today's scripture. That yeah. is the good the good news yeah. um, that that and and that that Jesus is brought to bring. I mean, Jesus is supposed to bring good news and we're following in, in Jesus' footstep. I, I'm not sure that Jesus' good news, as he understood it at this point in his life, was that he was going to die on a cross mm-hmm. at the hands of empire, right? Yeah. What else? Well, you know, one of the things, one of the things that I um, had mentioned in our group was that I keep being struck as we're looking at these passages about the difference between what the Jews thought of when they said or heard the word Savior and what Christians think when we hear or say the words Savior. Because as you said again today, the Savior from the Jewish perspective, the Messiah, was someone who was going to come as a military leader king and was going to free them from the Roman rule and was going to restore them as a nation. Where Christians see Savior as someone who's going to keep us out of hell. Right, which we haven't actually run across that concept yet, right? My comment um, was that it seems to me like somewhere in Jesus' life, either before his ministry started or maybe during the 40 days he was in the wilderness or maybe after his ministry, that Jesus himself started to have a broader view of, of why he was there, why God had sent him, than the Jewish people themselves would have had. That, you know, he somewhere it seems like he realized that he was not meant to be a warrior king, and he was not meant to just save uh, the Jewish nation, but he was to have a much broader um, role. Right, and that, and you're absolutely right. There is a like a turning point for him, you know, and 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 so that 
broadening and expansion didn't come till his adult years. It, our group, we we're in kind of Donna and I being a little bit facetious, but we we're kind of joking and saying it, it's almost, you know, we'd have the question now as how Christians are taught of like, well, what about the you know, kid in the jungle who never hears of Jesus? And so we were saying, you know, now with what we've learned in Bible study and even up till now to, you know, to today's lesson, it was almost better to not have heard of Jesus because there were so many more ways God could get to you. Versus once Jesus came on the scene, Christians like limited it and said all those other ways that God used to come after us and, you know, chase us and not chase us, but, you know, seek us out and want to dwell with us. Nope, none of those count anymore. Only specific <laughs> belief in Jesus dying on the cross for your sin. So it was interesting. Really We're just being, yeah, being just a little facetious saying, man, it was almost better to not have heard of Jesus because you had more ways to get to God. <laughs> More opportunity, more opportunity to connect. Mary, I see Mary, I see Mary, I see you talking. I cannot hear you. You might have to move closer. Because I'm talking under my breath, but I'm in agreement with what was being said. And for me, it begs the larger question. I know we'll get into that, but Woody has raised that today and then in a past about that fully human, fully divine. Um, I, I have to put it in the context of human um, and then step into the divine. But the human, when he knew for me is almost situational, just as it is for us as we grow in our faith, I don't think he had a sep separate journey. He was fully human. Um, come across injustice yep. into your divinity in that moment. I, it's, it's that to me is what gives me comfort and allows me to live in the imperfection to know that Jesus, I don't lay things on him that I don't lay on myself because I believe I am in him and he is in me. However you define the he, I, that's another whole conversation. But, but I think it becomes situational. Did he have, he went, this is a line of demarcation. I am now this person. That's not in my theology. I think it is evolving and continues to. That's the news. It doesn't stop. It just continues as we view injustice and woundedness in our world. We are given opportunities over and over and over to step into our divinity. I, I you know, because we are fully human and fully divine. If we are made in the end. And that's what I believe. I do believe if we that. Are, we, if we are sons and daughters of God, uh, you, know, uh, you know, as Luke um, emphasized, I think I saw Mar Martha saying something a second ago. I was, um, I'm not sure if that was Erica or Ellen, um, was talking about, I think it, um, the facetious comment that, that you all had in the group. I actually think that's helpful. Mm -hmm. Good, I'm glad. Can you repeat it? <laughs> that part about them being a, basically kind of kidding about that they were really better off not having heard anything because that opened up the possibilities of 
of being able to get to heaven a lot more. So we were kind of kidding, but I think it came around to being like, well, yeah, that's right. Jesus somehow limits people's access to God. I think does a focus that, solely does on that Jesus. sound right at all that Jesus would limit people's access to God. That doesn't no. that, that statement just doesn't sound true to me. No, it's almost a needing to then you, take our facetious statement and have it be a reframe of Jesus being an expansion of our access to God and a more you know visible and human you know connection. Um, you know, some of us are visual learners. And yeah. so I think that there's something to be said for, um, you know, God in human form and, you know, being born a baby and put in a, you know, in a manger, you know, there's, there's just something that I think is more accessible versus um, our facetious comment about it being limiting. I think we can flip that on its head and make it more access versus less. Well, you know, I think that, that as humans, um, and it's probably in our DNA, we tend to be tribal, we tend to be clannish, cliquish, um, you know, this is our group, we're the ones that have all the secrets and the truth and the power, and everybody else doesn't. And I think we see that in, um, in the Hebrew Bible, with the Jews viewing Yahweh's revelation as being only for them, and yet over and over and over again, Gail, you pointed out examples of where Yahweh was actually sending prophets to other kings and and blessing other civilizations and things. And and then today with modern particularly Protestant Christians, but perhaps also within the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, this idea that Jesus now is the only way that God can reveal to us and bless us and speak to us. And again, you know, we hold that secret. We're the ones that have the blessing and the truth and everybody else in all these other religions, even if they worship the one God and creator and so much of their faith structure is very similar to what we see in the Bible, um, that they're wrong. They're all going to hell because they don't have the, the, the accepting Jesus into your heart and confessing your sins, saying the sinner's prayer, a little magical peace as part of their faith. Um, and that takes us back to, I think, our very human, very tribal tendencies, but we're, we don't see that when we look at the Bible. We see that broader inclusion and Jesus, you know, healing those the the slave of the roman centurion and you know and and expanding beyond just the jews even in his ministry again i know we're getting ahead of the story um but that whole idea that jesus and god are constantly trying to expand our vision and we're constantly trying to tighten it down we you said we are constantly trying we. to tighten it back yeah. down we as, we as humans yeah. we as humans yeah. Yes. Well, I wonder too, it kind of goes back to the idol of certainty, right? For, for us humans to not know an answer, to um, be okay with the unknowns, uh, to be okay with not having um, security in what's going to happen is very difficult. So we lash on, I think, to the Bible verse, like that Jesus is the only way, because then that brings us comfort in knowing that now I am okay to wrestle with so much that we don't know 
with the future because I have the answer is Jesus. That makes me feel better about the future. Then I can rest at peace. And so I think that us Christians have latched on to the Savior and only being one way just to help us be okay with the uncertainty of who God is and what's going to happen to us after. So I, I think that's that's part of it, a way of us coping with the fear of the unknown that is there if we don't lash on to the answer, the way, the truth, Jesus. To me, to me a lot of this comes down to who or what we believe God is. If we believe that Jesus is God, then, then it gets back to that, well, if you don't believe in Jesus or you don't know about Jesus, then you don't believe in God. And that's why I have trouble equating those two things. I think this is my own personal theology. Jesus was pointing us to God, but the idea that Jesus is the same as God, I have trouble with that. And, and you can also come at it the other direction, um, which is to take that that statement, um, Jesus, that if you have found God, you have also found Jesus. That 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 that's. I find that very comforting. That and and there are witnesses many through in throughout the world where people have found God, have found God, and then come to know Jesus in these particular instances. They come to know Jesus and they say, that's who that is. I, that, I just didn't know his name, you know, but he's been there all along. And that kind of a, a reaction you have seen. But I have to believe that we are sent to tell the good news about what God is doing for us, how God views all of us, and that 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 is our job, and that the whole heaven helping is God's job. It's God's job, not my job. I don't need to to stress about whether somebody's in or somebody's out. I just need to tell them the good news that that God cares. Basically, that you know, God Gail, cares a whole lot. Yeah. And in, in telling them the good news, well, I can make these statements because I have my fire insurance. <laughs> and so I know I'm good regardless because you can't revoke that. But oh, telling the good news is our actions is how we treat one another, is how we behave as people. It's not just verbally, do you know Jesus, but rather being worthy and showing kindness and love to one another so that people can see the peace and happiness and calmness in our life and ask us, mm. what is the secret? I, lo I love that. And, and to me, that raises the question, okay, if you've got a person out in the wilderness, whether, whether it's Africa or wherever, and they are the kindest, uh, best acting person in the world, but they don't, they don't have any, any God. They don't have a supreme being. They don't have anything like that that they worship, but yet they, are, they, they act out of goodness. Does that person know God or not? 
that's where we talked about being that question that was always asked. Part of how we got into the, it's almost better if you never heard, is it was almost like that had a special dispensation of some kind. If people had never had the opportunity, they would not be held accountable for that. Now, where it ever says that anywhere. It does, Donna, you're, yeah. practically, you're <laughs> practically quoting Paul. Right. So just but I'm say saying it. we were definitely not taught that way. It was just kind of a, if people haven't heard about it, you know, whether it's like the last minute deathbed, Tuesday or B, I don't know, you know, but supposedly there was just this overriding, the people who haven't heard will have a chance in some form, fashion, that we don't need to worry no, about. I taught that. I was taught that it didn't matter how good a person you were. If you didn't trust Christ as your savior, you were going to hell and it didn't matter. The rest of it didn't matter. Well, I think, and, yeah, uh, I, but this was a specific kids, thing to the people who didn't get a chance. You know, the, the, no, the even though missionaries went out. If that, yeah. I was taught if, if, a, if a person in, I'm going to say Timbuktu, but I actually know a missionary in Timbuktu. <laughs> but I was told, um, because there really is a place called Timbuktu, in case you didn't know that. Um, but I was told if, you know, there's a, a tribe in, in Africa that no missionary has ever gone to and the gospel was never preached to them and blah, 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 and they died, they were going to hell. I was taught that. Yeah, and then and that I, goes back to what you said earlier about that it is our responsibility, right? our burden and as Christians that, that we have to tell everybody us. in the world about Jesus. Exactly. And Which goes to evangelism and missionaries. But surely that's taking over religion. things. That's not faith. That's religion. Yeah. That's indoctrinated in my head and then indoctrinated into my children's yeah. head. And my children started questioning. My children were the ones who said, now wait a minute. My best friend, blah, 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 is you know, this, that, and the other thing, but they're atheists. And you're telling me they're going to go to hell? And my yeah. answer to them back in the day was, yeah. Yeah. And now I'm like, I, I, I'm struggling. Okay, I'm not going to lie. I'm struggling yeah. because these teachings have been given to me for more than 60 years. I'm not telling you exactly. But mm -hmm. anyway, for, you know, for yeah. 60 years, I'm... I've been taught this and this, well, all this concept is new to me. And I'm like, this makes sense, but it's so hard to grasp because I was indoctrinated. I was brainwashed. And I think that we can rest here. We don't have to know all the answers in this class to all of the questions that we have. Jesus is about to show us what it means to bring good news to the people, to the unbelievers, all right? And we're going to pay attention to how Jesus does it because Jesus well, yeah. then tells us to go and do likewise. Even though I'm struggling, I'm not upset. I mean, I'm upset, I'm upset that I was indoctrinated, but I, it, it's a relief. It, it, it's a burden lifted. And oh my gosh, that's what Jesus that is. That's what God is. God is a burden lifter. I'm like, oh my gosh, 
it's enlightening and it's yeah and i want to be clear that i'm not here trashing christians or christianity i am a christian i am a lifelong christian i all of the above i'm trying to simply walk us through our sacred scripture i'm trying to walk us through the bible and 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 I'm like a guide on a nature trail. I'm pointing out plants to you and telling you their names, um, so that you can find your way, so that you know what's edible and what's not edible. And um, and, and and I'm not. I want to make it clear that I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus' divinity. I believe in His humanity. All of these things. I'm I'm just wanting you to be well grounded in how Jesus himself would have been taught as he grew up, the kinds of things he would have known and the kinds of things that the the people who these letters were written to believe so that you get a feel for how they land. Remembering that he was a Jew, he was brought up and raised in that realm. Again, another thing we never considered, surely. <laughs> Gail, right. mm -hmm. thank you for creating a safe space where we can bring our unknowing and our questioning out. And this is sacred space for me to hear from all. When I moved to Texas, I was told, recent move, that you don't say y'all, you say all y'all. And I... <laughs> I found it great today when you said pas or ponte means so all y'all pas ponte every opinion every comment is important to my journey and thank you for creating this space for us to do this I cannot believe we are not unlike the acts of the apostles when they gathered together and had the same debates that's what I think of I'm and how lovely we have places to do that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And for sure. For sure. Any other comments before we sign off for today? Or I agree with Mary. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a good it's good to have a little space to bring up the questions that are bouncing around in your head yes. and know that that you're not gonna be just like, you know, cast aside, that that will We'll talk and we'll think about it. And um, I'm excited for what we have coming, coming for, for us in the future lessons. I love you all. See you next week. Thank you, everybody. Have fun celebrating. Bye. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Bye. Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah. There was one last thing we talked about in our group. Uh -huh. And I was just going to mention it. And uh -huh. it was the question, what might have been the emphasis in Jesus learning growing up? My comment, if, if Mary got all that stuff put on her by the shepherds, and then we'll say the wise men and everybody else, and she takes it in her heart. If that was my son, I wouldn't put that on him. I wouldn't tell him all those things. I would tell him he walks on water because I did <laughs> all the time but i wouldn't tell him the burden of saving humanity and saving a nation and all that 
Yeah, and, and you, I don't think you would put that on a little child, but I think as he matured and became grew into adulthood, remember he didn't go into ministry till he was thir- about thirty years old. So well, I think he as he was an adult, she would... at twelve, right? Pardon? He was in the temple at twelve. Yeah, but that's where his heart was. That's that's because this was fascinating to him, just in the same way that it was fascinating to me. The Bible classes my parents and grandparents taught every day of the week, you know, during my childhood years fascinated me. I I wanted to be able to look in those big books and find the find out what the Hebrew and the Greek meant. And I wanted to understand what they were talking about. And it I, even as a young adult, it it distressed me that I didn't know enough about prophecy at that point in my life to know which prophecies were fulfilled and which weren't. And I had no context or framework for knowing that. And people would tell me things that this is an unfulfilled prophecy. And I would like want to say like, well, how do you know that? How do you know that? You know, (laughs) I I had to do a lot of work. You know, well, I used to put up a timeline and try to figure out that kind of thing. Okay, yeah. okay they said these people because everybody says something different as well. Mm-hmm. Everybody had their own theory. Prophecy. That's a other deal. A lot of ways. That's right. That's Stay right. away from Revelation. We'll get to that at the end. We will. We'll get to that. But through it all, the thread is that God loves us and is doing everything He can to get to share life with us. Period, the end. That's it in a nutshell.